to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's December 1539, and Anne of Cleves is tired, cold, and seasick. She has been traveling for weeks across the stormy seas, sent to a foreign land to marry a complete stranger. There is no time to rest. Once she lands at Calais, she'll journey onward by carriage, stopping along the way to meet the English nobility with a gracious smile. At each stop, Anne will try her best to make a good impression, all the while trying to keep her mounting anxiety at bay. What will her future husband say when she arrives in London? Will he be handsome, even though he's twice her age? Will he be kind, even though he divorced his first wife and beheaded his second? How will they even communicate? She can't speak English, and she doubts very much that he speaks German. How will she fare in this court so different from her own? Like most royal women, Anne didn't have much of a choice when it came to whom she married. It was considered her duty to honor the needs of her family and her kingdom over whatever her own might be. So when she was told she would marry Henry VIII, the King of England, she did what she was told and started packing. In Tudor times, as in many others, royalty didn't often have their privilege of indulging in courtship and romance. What about everyone else? Did they get to pursue their hearts a little more freely? Let's take a walk with Anne of Cleves, who will show us more about what love, courtship, and marriage were like for women in Tudor England. As always, we'll be time-traveling with our Tudor expert, historian Elizabeth Norton, author of many books, including The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women. Now, grab a priest, your dowry, and your very best dress. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My boss ladies, Dawn, Amy, Annabelle, Elizabeth M., Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Natalie, Nuria, Patricia, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tonya. My adventuresses, Anna, Carlos, Deborah, Emily, Helena, Iris, Jessica, and Jessica with an R, Joe Marie, Kelly, Phil, Stephanie, and Terry. My warrior queens, Ika, Lori, Alexis, June, Neve, and Sloan, and Kate. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the fabulous Laura and the incredible Courtney's. Patrons play a huge role in keeping the show going. It's because of them that I was able to hire my amazing research assistant and support writer, Carly, without whom I couldn't have written season three. For a couple of bucks a month, patrons support an independent creator, and they get access to exclusive bonus episodes, contests, the Explores yearly calendar, full interviews with guests like Elizabeth Norton, and more. To find out more about it, just go to my website. A quick content warning for those listening with small explorescences. This episode will contain several references to bedsport. Nothing explicit, but just a heads up. Let's 
let's jump back into 1539, shall we? And look out, ladies, because King Henry VIII is back on the marriage mart for the fourth time. Although, I think we've all learned that monogamy clearly isn't his cup of tea. Henry can't afford to kick back and live it up bachelor style. Protestant England is surrounded by hostile Catholic nations, and with France and the Holy Roman Empire plotting a possible attack, Henry needs to find a strong Protestant ally to shore up his defenses. He finds one in the Schmalkaldic League, a group of Lutheran duchies in Germany, and sets his sights on a marriage alliance with one of the League's most prominent members, the House of Cleves. Unlike Henry, most Tudors aren't contemplating marriage to forge an epic political alliance. They're getting married primarily for three things. Someone to play horizontal tennis with, money, and kids. The church believes that all sex outside of marriage is a sin, particularly if you're a lady. So if Tudors want to participate in any sort of sexy time, they have to put a ring on it first. The church knows the score. Pressuring people into getting married before they do the deed is a much more effective strategy than trying to stop them from giving in to their carnal desires altogether. Lustful motivations aside, a Tudor marriage is often at least partly about money. At their core, marriages are economic contracts between families, and thus almost always begin with financial negotiations. For the poor Tudor ladies amongst us, marriage is a surefire way to build generational wealth, as more children means more workers and more income. For the nobility, marriage allows families to manage their land holdings, pass on the family name, elevate their social status, and, yes, sometimes create political alliances. Among the English nobility and royal family, marriage negotiations often take place when the prospective couple are still young children. Catherine of Aragon, for example, was betrothed to Prince Arthur at the ripe old age of three, although they didn't marry until she was 15. Early marriages like Catherine's are socially acceptable as long as the groom is at least 14, and as long as the bride is at least 12. Yikes. That's usually when Tudor girls begin menstruating, the theory goes, and are thus considered to be of childbearing age. Because of course the most important thing girls can bring to a marriage is a working set of reproductive lady parts. But don't think this is par for the course in Tudor England. Royalty and nobility are usually the only ones getting married this young, and early marriages will fall out of favor by the Elizabethan age, at which point the legal marriageable age will be raised to 16 for men and 14 for women, with all couples under the age of 21 requiring parental consent to tie the knot. In truth, it's much more common for tutors to wait to get married. Men are usually between the ages of 24 and 30 when they first walk down the aisle, and women are usually between 22 and 27. This delay means that young people can gain experience in a job or apprenticeship, and, hopefully, the know-how they'll need to keep it running. In this patriarchal world, working-class women know not to accept a suitor unless he's able to provide for her. In 1539, Agnes Adane told her suitor, Henry Corbett, that she wouldn't marry him until he had his own farm, so... That we dwell not within your mother, nor my mother. Agnes wants her own house, y'all. Many parents also advise couples to wait until their 20s because they view young people as too immature and irresponsible to handle marriage. One contemporary author writes, Until a man grow into the age of 24 years, he is wild without judgment and not of sufficient experience to govern himself. Mm, 24? Try 30.
If tutor marriage is primarily an economic contract, do tutors expect to find love with their future spouse? Yes, ideally. Here's Elizabeth. The ideal position was that there would be some love between a couple if they were, you know, thinking of getting married. So, you know, fundamentally, you, the ideal was you would bring a young couple together and they would, you know, at least have some affection for each other before they married. That said, passion and romantic love are not considered good foundations for a stable marriage. As one proverb warns, He who marries for love and no money hath good nights but sorry days. Instead, reciprocal affection is considered the gold standard. A good tutor marriage seems to be a companionable partnership in which the couple gets along well and works together to raise a family and attain financial stability, while, hopefully, learning to love each other along the way. Many people do expect to find love with their spouse, just not immediately, with another proverb advising couples to marry first and love after by leisure. One thing we know for certain is that arranged, loveless marriages are most common among the nobility. These alliances are about power and money, and when you have large sums on the line, your daughter's feelings apparently don't rank all that high. Unsurprisingly, then, between 1595 and 1620, around a third of noblemen are living separately from their wives. One classic example is that of William Parr, the brother of King Henry's sixth wife, Catherine. At 14 years old, William's mother arranges for him to marry one Lady Anne Borchier. Unfortunately, Lady Anne hates William with a burning passion and refuses to live with him for years. Eventually, she tells him, quite publicly, that she would take her pleasure and live as she liked, and that she never loved him, nor never would. Tell us how you really feel, Anne. But Anne isn't joking about taking her pleasure. She elopes with her lover and becomes pregnant with his child, causing a humiliated William to seek a separation and begin an affair of his own. The Pars live like that for years, causing so much scandal that their marriage finally has to be annulled by an act of parliament. Congratulations, you two hated each other so much that the government had to get involved. True love matches are about as rare as a unicorn sighting amongst Tudor-age royals. No matter how much their parents might love them, royal daughters are seen as political bargaining chips. What's the best way to cement a key alliance? Through marriage, obviously. In the chess game of European power, princesses are key pieces, moved around through marriage to whomever suits their family dynasty best. Most royal couples don't even meet one another before the marriage treaty is signed, let alone engage in proper courtship. Catherine of Aragon and her first husband, Arthur Tudor, are engaged before they both turn six and spend the next decade writing letters to each other. They're married by proxy years before they actually clap eyes on each other. At least these lifelong pen pals went into it wanting to like each other and knowing they were around the same age. Henry VIII's unfortunate sister, Mary, is basically forced to marry the French King Louis. She's 18 and he is 52. So that's interesting. But as king, Henry VIII has a lot more room to move to choose his partners. His first three wives were chosen primarily for the affection Henry felt for them. Though Catherine of Aragon married his brother Arthur for the alliance, Henry chose her because he wanted to. His next two wives were both controversial in their different ways, and yet Henry let his heart, and maybe his codpiece, do the choosing. Lover of poetry and courtly games that he is, Henry thinks of himself as a true romantic. But after Jane Seymour's untimely death, he was reluctant to get back in the marrying saddle. 
But as the years go by, it becomes increasingly apparent that he needs allies in Europe. He also needs another heir, just in case something happens to baby Edward, and let's be honest, he ain't getting any younger. The Catholic wolves of Europe are circling, and Henry's legacy is far from assured. So his advisor, Thomas Cromwell, pushes for this next marriage to be unapologetically political. You know, something that'll really help the country out. But Henry says he isn't just going to marry some random foreign princess. The lady has to meet certain requirements. So she has to be fertile, obviously, young enough to bear him children, and sweet-tempered. And, perhaps most important of all, she's got to be smoking hot. His first choice is the beautiful French widow Madame de Longueville. He sends envoys to put forward his suit, but alas, she's already engaged to the young, attractive King James of Scotland. She isn't really free, and that's lucky for her because she doesn't want what Henry's selling. Fine, Henry thinks, a little embarrassed. He writes to ask that the most eligible French women be presented at a manor house in Calais for his inspection. The French king, Francis I, is not impressed. And so Henry turns his sights elsewhere, and to the famously beautiful Christina of Denmark. She's smart, witty, sweet, perfect. But Christina wants nothing to do with Henry. She poses for the portrait he commissions, listening half-heartedly to his envoy's speech about Henry's many charms. But she isn't moved by it. I would marry King Henry, she's reported as saying. If I only had an extra head to spare. Henry's starting to feel just a teensy bit rejected. Until Thomas Cromwell says, what about that House of Cleves? They'd be a helpful ally, and the Duke of Cleves has a 24-year-old sister. Henry asks his envoys in Cleves for a full rundown on Anne's appearance, to which his ambassador replies, Everyone praises the lady's beauty, both of face and body. One said she excelled the Duchess of Milan as the golden sun did the silver moon. But Henry isn't taking any chances. After all, his ambassador has never actually seen Anne. She's always covering herself up for modesty. I mean, who knows what's going on under that veil? As negotiations progress, a slightly panicked Henry sends famed artist Hans Holbein the Younger to Cleves to paint Anne's portrait. He needs a definitive profile pic so he can decide whether or not to swipe right. Hans ends up producing a stunning portrait. You can see it yourself in the show notes. And when Henry sees it, his lukewarm feelings disappear. Okay, guys, okay, she's hot. Proceed. Who exactly is this girl from Cleves? And why is her family so willing to marry her off to a man who beheads his wives? Anne of Cleves has an impressive pedigree. She's related to King Louis XII of France, and her brother-in-law is the head of the Protestant Confederation of Germany. Thanks to the strict morals underpinning her era's German culture, Anne had a very sheltered upbringing. It's common for German noblemen and women to live sequestered from one another, so Anne spends most of her time in the women's quarters, where male visitors are prohibited from visiting at night, and all male servants have to be under the age of 12. Anne has grown up surrounded by women, raised primarily by her Catholic mother and her governess. She speaks only German, no English, no French, and hasn't been trained in music or poetry. She knows very little about the ways of the English court. So, not the best situation for someone bound to marry Henry VIII. 
Even though Anne's court view the English one as full of morally loose barbarians, the Schmalkaldic League is eager to form an alliance with their fellow Protestants. So when Anne's 22-year-old brother Wilhelm becomes the new Duke of Cleves in 1539, he welcomes Henry's interest in his sister. The marriage treaty is officially signed in October of that year. Although most women aren't forced to marry royal megalomaniacs, it's fairly normal for Tudor families to be heavily involved in facilitating marriage. After all, it has repercussions for the social standing of the whole family and can affect their future prospects. This can cause strife, of course. Although secret liaisons and elopements do happen, they are considered pretty scandalous and best avoided, unless you're looking to get disowned, or worse. When Joan Conyers refuses to put on her wedding dress, as she isn't interested in marrying the man her parents have picked out for her, her father warns her that he would not leave one whole bone of her if she doesn't get herself down the aisle. Stellar parenting, Mr. Conyers. Parents are very invested in their daughters marrying someone appropriate in social station and situation. When Margaret Paston decides to marry a servant, horrors, her parents think beating her for days on end will convince her to end the betrothal. It doesn't. Shocker. And she marries the man anyway, losing her inheritance in the process. Money is one of the biggest reasons parents are able to exert so much control over their children's marital choices. Many will only distribute property, allowance, or inheritance to their heirs if they agree with their son's prospective choice. Daughters have an especially difficult time because they are more financially dependent on their parents, who feel morally obliged to see their daughters married off. After all, in Tudor England, becoming a wife and mother is the safest way for women to achieve financial stability and social acceptance. Some parents even try to control their daughters' marital choices from beyond the grave. They nominate husbands in their wills or make bequests that any future marriages are conditional upon approval of the groom by their executors. Imagine falling in love and then having to ask your dad's buddies for permission to marry him. Step off my business, son. Let's be clear. For most tutors, the idea of forcing two young people to marry is considered distasteful. But plenty of girls marry their parents' choice of suitor because they feel that they have to. One Elizabeth Rayner says she never consented in her heart to her father's saying. And yet she allows herself to be measured for wedding garments. For fear of her father and mother's displeasure. How many Tudor women like Elizabeth find themselves stuck in marriages they aren't keen on because they're afraid or unable to stand up to their parents? The amount of agency daughters have in all of this varies greatly, depending on their relationship with their family, so it's hard to say for sure. Technically, though, daughters don't need their parents' consent to marry if they're of age, but most heed their wishes out of love, respect, and obedience. In a society that's all about respecting one's elders, especially fathers, it makes sense that most women aren't likely to push back. At the end of the day, though, parents want the same thing as their daughters when it comes to marriage, to find happiness, financial stability, and status. Thus, most daughters welcome their parents' assistance, and most parents make a genuine effort to take their children's feelings into consideration. They mostly allow the couple to get to know each other first through courtship, which gives them a chance to either veto the match or, hopefully, fall in love. After all, most parents acknowledge that forcing your child to marry someone they hate will only lead to extramarital affairs and a lifetime of misery. 
Just ask William Parr. Lower down the social scale, people are much more free to choose their spouse. Um, and mostly it's to do with you know, attraction. Um, they fall in love. They they dance together at dances. Often they work in the same household as servants. Um, that's quite common. Refreshingly, the church emphasizes the importance of consent in marriage. A union is only considered valid if all parties involved enter into it of their own free will. If either party can prove later that they were coerced into the marriage, it can be annulled, and there are plenty of court cases in which couples in their 20s are able to successfully prove that they were married against their will as young children. This issue of consent is also helpful when couples decide to elope or get married against their parents' wishes. If both parties are of age, have given their consent, and have consummated the union, no number of scandalized mothers or angry fathers in the world can part them. Their union's indissoluble in the eyes of the church. So just build a bridge and get over it, Mom! As 1539 draws to a close, Anne begins her journeys toward her future husband. After arriving at Calais, she goes to stay in Rochester before continuing on to London to meet Henry in the flesh. She asks the nobleman in charge of her escort to help her prepare to impress her husband. She gets him to teach her how to play Henry's favorite card game and asks that he brings English nobles to dinner. She might not understand much of their language, but she wants to try and get used to their manner and their jokes. No one can say Anne of Cleves isn't trying. Their meeting, set for Christmas, is delayed. Henry is told he'll have to wait for better weather. Henry, however, has other ideas. He spent months staring at Anne's portrait, concocting all sorts of romantic fantasies about his mail-order bride. So in love has he fallen, without ever actually seeing her, that he decides he can't be apart from her even one moment longer. He knows that it's going to be love at first sight. On New Year's Day, Anne is minding her business, watching a celebratory bull baiting through her sitting room window in the courtyard below. Suddenly, a group of nine cloaked, masked men storm in and accost her. The tallest and most physically imposing of the bunch grabs her up and tries to kiss her. Horrified, she shoves him away. Of course she does. Anne is in a foreign land, she doesn't speak the native language, and she's grown up in a culture where men and women are hardly allowed in the same room, let alone groping each other. A cloaked stranger wearing a mask has just assaulted her, and now the men around them are laughing. Doesn't this man know who she is? That she's to be married to their king? Well, unbeknownst to her, he is the king. When the men leave the room, her ladies try to explain. It's a game of chivalry, of courtly love. Anne didn't find it very amusing. Why would Henry come to his bride in such a disguise? The idea was that their love would burn so bright that Anne would be able to see past Henry's disguise and embrace him. I mean, that's the way it always worked with court ladies and his past wives. Women love it. Oh, honey, this is not the way to woo a queen. Fake abduction scenes aside, what does courtship look like for other Tudor women? In Tudor England, young people are fairly free to mix and mingle at markets, fairs, or dances, and many of them meet their spouse after leaving home to undertake an apprenticeship. Family members or friends also try to play matchmaker and introduce compatible pairs to one another. One single Tudor guy remembers his wingman trying to set him up by asking, How say you if I would help you to a widow who is come of worshipful parentage and hath twenty pounds a year dowry or jointure? 
who hath no children, and is of years nigh about five or six years younger than yourself. Wealthy noble bachelors don't need to try particularly hard to find someone to court, at least not according to one Simon Foreman, who boasted that he was offered a wife many times and had the sight and choice of four or five maids and widows. I hope for your wife's sake that your tackle's as big as your ego there, Simon. Simon Foremans of the world notwithstanding, courtship is actively encouraged before marriage. It is a process of bonding with your future spouse, as well as clarifying intentions before negotiations take place. This process has several unwritten rules that one has to follow. A man can't just randomly start showing up at his crush's house and getting to wooing. Usually, courtship begins with the young man's father or the suitor himself, writing to the father of the lady in question, asking if a visit would be welcome. The woman's father has a chance to screen this potential suitor, and if he likes the guy, he'll be invited over. The suitor can then start popping by to bring the lady gifts and get to know her and her family. Gifts are often exchanged in the early stages of courtship, and 99% of the time, men are the ones doing the gifting. Sorry, boys. Funnily enough, money is the most popular gift, although common tokens also include ribbons, gloves, and girdles. Oh my. Gifts like these signal a deeper commitment and serve as an acknowledgement that the courtship has moved beyond some casual flirting. When Richard Clothing gave Agnes Hutchinson a gift, he wrote, I will give you this kerchief on this condition that you shall never have another husband while I live but me. Richard is not here to play. Gifts are also important because they represent tangible physical evidence of a young man's intentions. As many Tudor ladies will come to learn, evidence is key if a courtship goes south. Take the widow Alice Carr, who finds herself being courted by a new boy in town named Thomas. He talks a big game about his wealth being such a great baker, and he starts having her over for dinners at his house in Stratford at Bow. When he proposes, she says yes, and when his friend gives her some documents to sign, she does it. Big mistake, Alice. Never mind that Alice can't read. No cause for alarm. She starts moving out of her house, handing Thomas's friend all of her most prized possessions. Somehow, both possessions and fiancé promptly disappear. The house she'd been visiting wasn't even his. The whole thing was a scam to get at her valuables. And those papers she signed? They stated that she owed his friend quite a large sum of money, but she signed it, which meant she had to pay. Besides evidence, witnesses are also super important. All stages of courtship require onlookers. Family members or friends are always present during visits, and they often act as messengers or go-betweens. Courting publicly formalizes and legitimizes the courtship. Secret liaisons are considered dishonest and scandalous in the extreme. One couple, William and Sybil, are reported to the church by their neighbors, who claim that they have been contracted about a year since and yet are unmarried and live in one house suspiciously together. Witnesses protect both parties from such accusations and act as a failsafe should one of them renege on a promise in the future. Henry and Anne don't really get the privilege of any of this. This is how Henry gets the bright idea to surprise Anne in costume. It's a game, you see, a romantic test. One that poor, unwitting Anne most definitely fails. Henry is humiliated by her rejection. After changing into his kingly attire, he comes back to introduce himself, and she knows she's made a big mistake. She does her best to apologize for the confusion, and Henry appears affable, even gracious about it. 
But as soon as he leaves, the first thing he says to Thomas Cromwell is the now-famous line, I like her not. Their relationship will never really recover from this devastating blow to his ego. And yet, despite what might be the worst first meeting ever, Henry and Anne will still get married. They might be separated by language, culture, and age, but their kingdoms have spent months negotiating this marriage treaty. Henry can't risk offending the Duke of Cleves, even if he feels tricked by this woman. I mean, she doesn't even look anything like her portrait. As he said, rather rudely, I see nothing in this woman as men report of her. He demands that Thomas Cromwell get him out of this marriage. Unfortunately, it's too late to call it off. For most couples, the courting stage is followed by a betrothal. This is usually signified by the exchanging of rings and the hand-fasting ritual, which is basically a glorified handshake agreement. The single most important part of this betrothal process is making sure you have witnesses, because once a couple is betrothed, they are seen as married in the eyes of God. And we know what that means. It's officially time for some bedroom sport. Despite all of our previous talk about negotiations and parental pressure, it turns out that most people aren't overly bothered about said sport if marriage is firmly in view for the couple. That is probably why between 20 and 30% of Tudor brides arrive at the altar already pregnant. When one Christopher Sellerst finds his brother in bed with Joanne Port, he said when, Examined whether he was miscontent that they had so company together before they were married. He saith no, for that he took them together assured as man and wife. And remember William and Sybil, that couple with the peeping neighbor? It turns out that they were right to be suspicious. She gave birth one month after they got hitched. Such an arrangement might work out fine for William and Sybil, but the whole let's shake hands and promise to get married so we can start getting naked together arrangement causes plenty of drama, especially for women. Church courts are filled with cases in which a woman gets with child by her betrothed, only for him to abandon her before the marriage ceremony. In these cases, the jilted woman can call upon her trusty witnesses to testify that a courtship and handfasting did indeed take place. She can even present any gifts she received as evidence. Church law regards promises to marry as binding, so if a betrothal can be proved, the church court will enforce it. God's justice is apparently a bunch of angry bishops frog-marching such reluctant grooms down the aisle. Happy wedding! Similarly, if paternity can be proven, the court will also hold the father accountable for child support. Which sounds lovely, if you can in fact prove it. But how many women do you imagine are left in dire straits when they can't? Once you are officially betrothed, your parents sit down to talk money. Negotiations often take months, and sometimes lawyers are called upon to draw up formal articles of marriage. There are usually two main points to consider in any Tudor marriage contract, the dowry and the jointure. The dowry is the responsibility of the bride's family and is the amount of money or land that she brings with her into the marriage. The dowry often depends upon the bride's status. If she's a noblewoman from a respectable family, her dowry might be lower, as her status makes her a more valuable catch. Royal dowries are often obscene. Catherine of Aragon's was somewhere around 40,000 pounds. In today's terms, that'd be over 20 million. Besides paying this enormous sum, usually in installments, the father of the bride will also pay for the bride's trousseau and the marriage feast. 
The jointure is important, as women often outlive their husbands, and so many fathers have to pay jointures to their sons' widows for decades. The amount of the jointure again depends on status. For example, remember how Mary Tudor was forced to marry the very old and wrinkly French king? That only lasted about three months. As Louis's widow, Mary was entitled to a jointure of £10,000 a year. But then she does something scandalous, marrying her brother's childhood friend, Charles Brandon, in secret. Henry forces her to give him £4,000 annually as a punishment for remarrying without his consent. Henry, can you just try not to be awful for, like, two seconds? Speaking of awful, for the first couple of years, many newlyweds will live with their in-laws so that they can learn to run a household and accumulate enough money for things like a good mattress. Clearly, a bunch of marriages are being tested right out the gate. On January 6, 1540, Anne of Cleves and Henry are married. The ceremony is all pomp, riches, and circumstance. Anne leaves her blonde hair loose, beset with jewels and gold cloth. But what do most Tudor wedding ceremonies look like? Once a couple is betrothed, they have to attend church so that the bans of marriage can be declared three times. This involves the priest formally announcing the couple's intention to marry and asking the congregation if anybody knows of any reason why they shouldn't get married. The whole point of reading the bans is to prevent any secret marriages, and it's done thrice to ensure that everyone has plenty of time to come forward with any impediments. I'll bet that occasionally causes some drama. The most common of these impediments is the discovery of a previous betrothal. Pre-contracts aren't binding, unless they're consummated, but they do have to be formally disavowed. One young Tudor couple, Thomas Soley and Agnes Smith, completed the hand-fasting ritual, and Thomas gave his bride-to-be a ring. But during their bans, a stream of witnesses came forth to testify that Agnes had been betrothed to William Heedley two years prior. Naughty Agnes! Apparently, William and Agnes also completed the handfasting, and William gave Agnes a ring as well, with one of the witnesses confessing that he thought in his conscience that they two were man and wife before God and could have no other. Eventually, it was revealed that Agnes ditched William once a better prospect came along, and then she wasn't allowed to marry Thomas. Nice try, though. Another Thomas, Thomas Cromwell, uses this old chestnut to try and get Henry out of marrying Anne. Back when she was ten, it said she was promised to the Duke of Lorraine. The ambassador from Cleves didn't understand when asked about it. Anne wasn't of an age to consent then. The thing wasn't at all legally binding. It's really no problem. But Cromwell still has to send for the proper paperwork, proving once again that Anne can marry Henry. The church does its best to regulate who is allowed to get married. For example, it doesn't allow young children to marry, you know, unless you're royal, nor does it allow people to marry their close relatives. Same. These rules often cause problems for the upper classes, many of whom are related either by blood or affinity due to decades of intermarriage. Royalty and nobles skirt right around these rules by requesting a dispensation from the Pope, which he often grants, for a price, of course. This was how Catherine of Aragon and King Henry were able to marry, even though he was technically her ex-brother-in-law. After the religious reformation, though, things changed. Henry could no longer run to the Pope with all of his marital problems. The Reformation also tries to change things by redefining marriage as a partnership between equals. 
Unfortunately, this doesn't actually pan out in practice. Tudor society is designed to limit women's economic and educational opportunities to ensure that wives will always be financially dependent upon their husbands. This unequal power dynamic is baked right into the vows. While men are prompted to love and protect their wives, women are prompted to love and obey their husbands. So, in exchange for agreeing to a lifetime of unwavering obedience, Tudor brides are receiving protection from what exactly? Dragons? As Elizabeth Norton told us in one of our previous episodes, gaining a husband means losing your legal independence. When you marry in the Tudor period, you lose your legal personhood. You're no longer an individual at law. You have no rights at all. So everything that a married woman owns before her marriage now belongs to her her husband. And that includes her clothes, um, her lands, if she's inherited any, every single thing, clothes, furniture, um, all belongs to her husband. And that's one of the reasons why a married woman can't make a will, because actually they don't own anything. You know, they've got nothing to leave. Yep, that definitely sounds like equality. If no impediments are discovered during the bans, then the marriage ceremony can proceed. Now, technically, you don't actually need a priest or even witnesses to get married. A wedding ceremony can be as simple as the young couple holding hands and exchanging bare-bones vows. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. Bam! Married. There's no need for a marriage certificate or witnesses or even consummation. And the only thing that really makes the marriage legal is the verbal consent of both parties. Which, it turns out, is pretty hard to prove in court. But this can work in a lady's favor, too. When Jane Singleton decides to wed Gilbert Halsell in 1588, she is very careful. She makes sure a local friend, one James Spencer, comes to witness their marriage at the local church. They stand up at the altar and both plight their troth, kiss, and spend the night together. But then Gilbert ghosts Jane, forcing her into the humiliation of going to the church court at Chester. She wins, at least. He was forced to honor his promises, though I can't think that she was happy with her husbandly prize. Hoping to avoid such catastrophes, most couples get married in front of a priest. On their wedding day, the priest meets the couple at the front door of the church. The woman stands to the left of the man, to symbolize the fact that Eve was made from Adam's left rib, and they recite their vows right there on the porch. The priest blesses the ring, and the groom places it on the bride's right ring finger before they're led into the church and pronounced married. The ceremony is usually followed by a feast and festivities, after which the priest blesses the marriage bed. The newlyweds are taken to that bed by their friends and family and left alone to find their conjugal bliss. It's not unusual for consummation to be postponed until well after the ceremony, particularly if the couple is still in their teens. King Henry's illegitimate son, for example, gets married at just 15, but he isn't allowed to live with his new wife because their parents feel they're too young for horizontal tennis time. Ugh, Dad! While early consummation ensures the legality of the marriage won't be questioned, by the end of the 16th century it's seriously frowned upon. Tudors start to realize that giving birth is extremely dangerous for younger girls, and they also believe that sperm is vital for a boy's growth and that having sex too early and too often might impair his physical and mental health. Unless you want to stop growing at 5'4", keep it in your pants, okay, son? What is Anne and Henry's wedding night like? 
by all accounts, not great. They're married in January 1540 at Greenwich Palace in London, only five days after their awkward first meeting. Anne is pretty much totally innocent about what goes on between the sheets for a married couple, and Henry is used to, well, more experienced sport. To be fair, Anne was given very little information, and Henry's impatience, combined with his intermittent impotence, isn't going to help matters. Let's just say they are unable to consummate the marriage. The next day, Henry tells Thomas Cromwell, Surely, my lord, as ye know, I liked her before not well, but now I like her much worse. Henry returns to Anne's bedchamber for four more nights, when he continues having trouble, uh, raising the flag up the flagpole. Henry does what he does best. He blames his wife. Although Anne is widely described as beautiful by court members, Henry claims she's too ugly for him to bed. He tells his doctors, It's not my fault I couldn't consummate the thing properly. I mean, her breasts and belly are saggy. She's probably not even a virgin. Obviously, that's why, as he put it, He could never in her company be provoked and steered to know her carnally. Ugh, go choke on your codpiece, Henry. These rumors make their way around court, and they've never really left us. By the end of the 16th century, long after Anne has passed away, it will become common to criticize her appearance by calling her the Flanders Mare. Anne, as we know, didn't have much say over whether or not she married Henry. But what about Tudor ladies who don't want to get married, or don't need to, because they're perfectly capable of fighting dragons by themselves, thank you very much? Do all Tudor women get married? Not necessarily, but most do, because the alternative is typically grim. A Tudor woman's marital status essentially determines how she'll live her life, and in a society where the only acceptable roles for women are that of wife and mother, single women are outcasts. Society has no place for them, and actively punishes the few women who do try to live outside the confines of marriage. Governors and officials limit where single women can live and in what trades they can work. In Coventry, for example, one law states, no single woman under the age of 50 years should take or keep from henceforth houses or rooms to themselves. In other words, a lady with a room of her own is suspicious. Who knows what salacious stuff she's getting up to in there? The only acceptable place for a single woman, then, is as a household dependent. This means living with your parents or family, or trying to find another place to live as a servant or lodger. So, even though marriage means losing your independence, it also means gaining important privileges. Becoming a wife in Tudor England means you've earned the right to head a household. And that privilege doesn't go away when your husband dies. Widows are perfectly free to live independently as single lady heads of house. When your husband dies, you, you pop back up as a legal person. You're now, now you can be sued, now you can go to court and you can own things. So, widowhood is very much for wealthier women, a time of liberation in many respects, in that now they have much more freedom. Under common law in England, a widow is entitled to at least a third of the income of the estate for the rest of her life. Most widows receive more than this and live off the pre-arranged income and property allocated to them by their jointure. Things get complicated if you want to remarry, though. All the property you receive as a part of your jointure from your first marriage legally becomes the property of your second husband the moment you say, I do. 
Around 1592, the widow Ellen Tanfield turns away Richard Helsington's proposal of marriage because she would have to forfeit the farm bequeathed to her by her first husband. Ellen is certainly no fool. About 70% of households in Tudor England are headed by married couples, and about 13% are headed by widows, the second most common arrangement. It's so bad out there for single ladies that even though there are twice as many of them as widows in England, only 1% of all households are headed by them. The moral of this particular story? If you really don't want a man in your life in Tudor England, you're better off plotting your husband's early demise than staying single. Poison anyone? Just kidding, right? If your spouse does die, totally by accident, you're pretty likely to marry again. Multiple marriages are extremely common because life expectancy is so short. About 25% of all marriages in the 16th century are remarriages for either the husband or the wife. Most people marry at least twice, and having three or four spouses over the course of your life is pretty normal, especially in the upper classes. Lady Margaret Beaufort married thrice, Henry's last wife, Catherine Parr, will marry four times, and Henry VIII's sister Margaret marries three times. Women of childbearing age usually do remarry, and it's not unusual for a son by a first marriage to have a stepmother of the same age, or younger, than himself. Awkward. Older women from the upper classes aren't as eager to remarry, especially if they have a large jointure to live off because they no longer have to listen to their parents or take financial matters into consideration. These women often take this moment as an opportunity to choose their partner for love. After Henry dies, his last wife, Catherine Parr, will do just that, wedding the guy she's long pined for, Thomas Seymour. He turns out to be, well, not her smartest decision, but that's a story for another time. Sometimes, women throw all caution to the wind and marry much younger men, well below their own social station. Tudor cougars running the show. These women wield much more power in the relationship than is the norm, and unsurprisingly, Tudor society doesn't much approve. Such unions are often mocked for being unnatural. But one playwright offers the following comedic advice to Tudor men. Guess I'm rich old widow and grow wealthy by her. Back to Anne, who is actually quite enjoying being Queen of England, but she isn't much enjoying her marriage to the king. It isn't long before Henry's eye and his libido starts wandering and he's sleeping with other women, namely Catherine Howard, who before too long will become his new wife. But no matter how the king behaves, Anne doesn't really have any choice when it comes to leaving him. No one leaves the king of England. If anything, he leaves you. Henry continues looking for a way to do just that. The alliance with Cleves is no longer really necessary, as the political landscape in Europe has shifted. But still, Henry has to tread lightly. Anne is a foreign princess, and he can't exactly execute her for no reason. I mean, right? No? Okay, just kidding. Still, he wants her gone, and sooner rather than later. It takes Henry six months to have a light bulb moment. In July, the King's Council informs Anne that they are investigating her previous betrothal to Francis of Lorraine. Remember that one when she was 11 years old? The betrothal has been disavowed, as we covered. Anne wasn't of the age of consent when it happened, and Henry knew about the pre-contract before their marriage, so come on. 
But still, Anne is anxious. Didn't Anne Boleyn's downfall begin with a similarly sketchy investigation? A secret convocation of clergy is called. Anne isn't notified of this meeting, let alone allowed to attend or defend herself. And they deem Henry and Anne's marriage invalid. The decision is based on three things. The supposed betrothal between Francis and Anne, Henry's lack of consent to marry Anne in the first place, and their lack of consummation. Henry, of course, gets to testify. I guess his invitation to the secret meeting didn't get lost in the mail. And his testimony includes this gem. I never for love to the woman consented to marry, nor yet if she brought maidenhead with her, took any from her by true carnal copulation. This argument is backed up by Anne's ladies-in-waiting, who testify that Anne didn't seem at all aware of what needed to happen to make babies. He kissed her goodnight and good morning, didn't he? Wasn't that enough to get it done? Was Anne genuinely this naive? Probably not. It's far more likely that she was feigning ignorance to avoid having to get naked with Henry, or because she was embarrassed by what went down behind closed doors. But in the end, it didn't matter. Anne receives news of the annulment via an interpreter, and she's so frightened of the implications that she faints on the spot. But to her credit, she recovers quickly, and she moves hastily into action. She might be from a foreign country, she might not really speak the language, but she learned from the mistakes of Queen's past. She writes a letter to Henry that says, So now being ascertained how the same clergy have therein given their judgment and sentence, I knowledge myself hereby to accept and approve the same, wholly and entirely putting myself, for my state and condition, to your highness's goodness and pleasure, your majesty's most humble sister and servant, Anne, the daughter of Cleves. Henry is so relieved that Anne isn't going to fight him the way Catherine of Aragon did that he writes back with his thanks, calling her his right dear and right entirely beloved sister. Your sister, yeah, if that's how you want to play it. Their marriage is officially annulled on July 9th, 1540. This might be embarrassing for Anne, but it was also smartly played on her part. Henry feels so generous towards her that he grants her £4,000 a year and assures her high social status. He makes it so she ranks just below his daughters and his new queen. He also gives her several estates, as long as she agrees to remain in England. This well-treated, hostage type of arrangement ensures Anne's brother's acquiescence. Wilhelm is furious about the annulment, and even more furious than Anne isn't coming home. But Anne probably is okay with remaining in England, because she has more money and independence there, and because she knows that no one else will want to marry her after Henry's rejection. Thus, even though Anne is never crowned queen, she enjoys a rather lavish retirement. At age 25, she becomes one of the few single women in England heading up her own household. She remains on good terms with Henry and his two daughters and is often invited to court. She will go on to outlive Henry and all his other wives, proving that sometimes it pays to be practical. Did she ever feel lonely? Did she ever want to get married again? It's hard to say, but at least she had her lavish lands and her life to console her. Henry manages to get his marriage annulled, but can his subjects do the same? Is divorce even an option in Tudor England? In a word, nope. According to the church, marriage is a binding contract, an indissoluble union lasting until death. 
There are loopholes, but they require going to church court to achieve. You can seek an annulment, but they aren't granted easily. You have to prove the marriage wasn't valid in the first place, just like Henry did. Acceptable grounds for a marriage being deemed invalid includes lack of consent, blood affinity, non-consummation, pre-contract or betrothal, insanity, and impotence. Yes, women are allowed to use impotence as a reason to leave their husbands, the argument being that this will allow them to remarry and have a shot at having children. Unfortunately, women have to somehow prove this about their husbands. Your Honor, the prosecution presents Exhibit A. Now, will the defendant please remove his pants? Tutors can seek what is essentially a separation. You can live apart from your spouse, but you can't ever remarry, since your marriage is technically still valid. The only real grounds for separation are adultery and abuse, although judges are much more inclined to grant separations when the wife is the one caught cheating. When the husband cheats, separations are hardly ever granted. After all, boys will be boys, just look at the king. King Louis XII of France is able to exploit a rare marriage loophole by forcing his first wife to join a convent, which Henry tries and fails to do with Catherine of Aragon. In cases where violence has become life-threatening to a woman, she can obtain a legal separation from her husband. A divorce, essentially, on the grounds of cruelty. But this bar is pretty high. We know from the suits of the period that the violence these women had to endure was truly terrifying. But even then she isn't safe, because under the law, her family members commit a trespass by sheltering her. Because technically, that woman is still married to her husband, so her family needs his permission to have her over to stay. In one case, where Richard and Isabel Virgins take in a woman who is being battered by her husband, Thomas Heil. Thomas actually kills Richard, and then Isabel is arrested and imprisoned for trespass. Still, the majority of Tudor people don't bother. Rather than spend time and money trying to convince a judge to grant them an official annulment or separation, most Tudor women in bad marriages just quietly pray for the day they will become a widow. And, with any luck, a wealthy cougar. Until next time. Thanks for listening. There are lots of ways to support the Explores. You can become a patron, of course. Or you can tell a friend about the show, post about it on social media, and rate and review wherever you listen. You can also go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com, where you'll find a transcript of this episode, lots of images, and a full list of my sources. You can find me on Instagram at the Explores Podcast, and sometimes on Facebook and Twitter at the Explores Pod. Thank you to Carly Quinn, my research and writing assistant, without whom this episode wouldn't have been possible. And to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for my theme music and logo. Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. You can find a link to his work in the show notes. Thank you, as always, to Elizabeth Norton, our Tudor historian, for joining us. Thank you to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Tana Evans, Catherine Elliott, Amy Oliver, Chris at Naturally RP, Ed, Christian, Carl, and Bez. Bev.